when you're empowered and you feel like people actually do want to hear what I have to say about these things. And by saying something about them, I might help other people. So I've never tried to shy away from that. But I think this has been the last few years as, as I, for some reason, of course, as I joined the New York Philharmonic. And that became like a, a, a platform where people are like, oh, he's the first black principal clarinetist living here for the Monic. And then people asking you what that means more than ever before. And people are taking notice. Then you realize, like I've always known, which is that the power of what you say, the power of what you communicate online is something that can affect others. It can help people. And the whole point of me becoming a musician, a lot of artists understand this and, and musicians, is that we're trying to we're trying to express something through music that can just help the world. Does it we don't want to hurt, no. you know? Like most musicians and artists aren't trying to make their art to hurt. Yeah. And if you can meld those things, like your ideas about the way the world could be and how beautiful people are and how beautiful you want the world to be with those ideals, an idealistic view of what the world could be, with your voice and your power as a musician to, to spread that same, that beauty in a different way. Welcome, everybody, to the Faking, Faking Notes, Notes Podcast. Okay, y'all, we are swinging above our weight class today, and we're about to embark on a conversation that woo, is, one of our, wow. is one of our best yet, bro. It's one of our best yet. Our guest is the first African-American principal player of the New York Philharmonic. He's the director of the Juilliard MAP program, and just one of the most prolific clarinetists alive today. Most of you were first introduced to him uh, when he performed at Obama's 2009 inauguration. But as you'll hear, we don't really talk about the bio that much. It's a testament to how inwardly focused he is on his growth and his journey and his place in the world. And we're just really excited to see where he goes next. As always, drop us five stars. That's all we accept here at the Faking Notes podcast. Leave us a review, y'all. We, we appreciate your feedback. And also, we have a Patreon campaign. Please contribute. Join money, our Discord. We're just trying to grow. We're just trying to grow. And tell a friend. Just tell one friend about us. And, and your word of mouth is the only way we grow. So we appreciate you, your time, your eardrums. And we're not going to waste any more of it. Without further ado, let's welcome our next guest. Anthony McGill. McGill, you rolling? I'm. I am We're rolling. We're good to go. Yeah, I'm recording that on my phone. I got my. You got coffee? Pris- it's tea. It's a prison break cup here. Oh! <laughs> break me out. It's a mu- huge mug. Oh yes. Oh my god, that is huge. Green tea. I'm into green tea right now, so I got my green tea here happening. 
Is tea a new thing, or did, is this like a segue away from coffee? What is what's this tea situation? Yes, good, quite good question. I, I was never like a hardcore coffee drinker, but I would like have a cup of something that maybe like a cappuccino, like on days when I'm not performing. But I discovered the tea thing because I never used to like green tea, but I got it going when like I discovered this whole community of super like matcha like green tea people that are like into. <laughs> And like the, I did all this research about L-theanine. I came across somebody, an athlete talking about L-theanine, amino acid, and how caffeine and L-theanine kind of gets you like focused and not jittery after the caffeine. And I was like, that sounds like something I might be into. As a performer, we don't like the jitters part. We like to be alert. So yeah, people like the health proper the health benefits and stuff. And I was like, all right, cool. I got to, I got to do it. And I'm at home and this is a great experiment to like do it. And now I'm into it. I love that. I love that. My roommate, uh, former roommate, she actually moved out. Mindy Elichu. She's been on this podcast before. She is so into tea. So I've learned a lot about tea from her. She's quit the coffee thing. I have a question for you though. Have you ever read the book, uh, why we sleep? No. It's an interesting book. I forget the author of it. I've only been through about half of it, but there was a scientific study that they did on spiders with their webs, the formations of their webs. And they, they imbued the spider with marijuana, THC, imbued it with caffeine, nothing as a control group and some other substance that I'm forgetting, but the shape of the webs was influenced by the, the chemicals that they had in their bodies. And the spiders that had the caffeine were unable to create a symmetrical or even cohesive spider web, which was so what? interesting, Whoa. which was so interesting to me. Even the, the, the spiders that had uh, been given THC marijuana had better formations than the caffeine, which really blew my mind. Cause I was like, I thought you'd be creative spider. What's going yeah. on? Yeah. <laughs> I thought you'd get into it. It, it but, is uh, probably it is probably offset their electromagnetic all this stuff they're like into spiders like when you like research spiders a little bit because we had some webs out on our balcony really? this summer this last year like got into the fact that they can just fly on like with their webs on like the electromagnetic fields and stuff there was what? like d- there's deep stuff going on with spiders spider man yeah yeah <laughs> like legit yeah <laughs> could you also imagine though Drew. Like someone goes to a cocktail party, you're one of these scientists, like having that conversation. So what do you do for work? Oh, I'm in investment banking. Well, what do you do? Oh, I drug spiders. (laughs) (laughs) But incredible stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Brain hacking. That's a thing. Body hacking, brain hacking. I need to read the book about sleep, though, because that's like a that's a real deal. Man, I have this like whoop band thing that like tracks your fitness stuff and Mm -hmm. And I mean, it actually, you keep a journal of all of that stuff and it does make a difference when you start realizing after a certain period of time by your journaling and stuff in the app, like you, if you want a good, uh, good night's sleep, don't drink. That should be the slogan for like (laughs) most people, if not athletes, it's because it's obvious when I wake up in the morning, I'm like, oh, wow, that was a good sleep. And I like, like, look at my app and I'm like. Oh, yeah, of course. I got sleep because I didn't, I didn't have yeah. a glass of wine. It's like legit. I found the name of the author, Matthew Walker, PhD. 
Why mm. We Sleep. That's the book. So if you want to check that out, I'm going to make sure in Faking cool. Fam as well. I remember one plane ride. I was flying back. It might have been the first plane ride back from New York to North Carolina where I grew up. And I more often not try to chat up with people. It's I just think it's so interesting to talk to people like outside of our little music bubble. And just coincidentally, this guy knew a lot about music. It was odd. But it turns out he was a Duke professor and his field of study was sleep. And so this is still a couple of years ago, but it seems like for all of us, we like to read up on these things and all these little like curious studies. And this is his, this was his main field. And what he told me, we know almost nothing about sleep. We are just at the very beginnings. We don't know much about nutrition. We don't know much about the human bodies. I feel like we know more about outer space than about what happens when we close our eyes. That's really, it's really stuck with me. It's fascinating to see all these books and all this research now going into sleep and just to notice how important all these little things are. Like, don't stare at the screen one hour before bed. Have a ritual. Eat this. Don't do this. You know, <laughs> complete darkness. Wake up naturally. Like, it's, it's insane, the rituals that go into it. Are there some other things, wormholes you've dived in? Like, we've already talked about spiders. Now we're yeah. going into sleep. Like, what? Yeah, no, we're, what we're, doing, we're doing it. This is actually happening because two things. Well, first thing is about the Duke professor. Because when you said Duke professor, I was like, first of all, and you were like, happens to know a lot about music. I was like, I know a lot of Duke professors who know a lot about music because... <laughs> <laughs> at Duke performances where I've played a couple times down there at the series at, in the after parties, you know, usually as classical musician, you go to these like after parties and dinners and stuff. And you're sometimes they're super boring because they're, you meet a lot of people who don't know anything about music and they say <laughs> not very like sensitive or smart things to you and inappropriate <laughs> things. And you have to deal with that and nod and smile and stuff. And, and yet at these Duke dinners, the professors are so well-informed about music and art and, and their, and their fields of, of um, expertise. So when you said Duke professor, I was like, though I like, for some reason I've met lots of really <laughs> not like really intelligent Duke professors. One of them in particular, I remember was a specialist in the four quartets of T.S. Eliot's four quartets, Wow, as well as like, obviously an expert in Beethoven quartets. And he has a course that he does every year talking about these, this work in particular. And, and was really deep into it. He's even sent me a copy of a manuscript. Anyway, it was, it's like really fascinating conversations I've had with some Duke professors, but about sleep and what that kind of makes me think about a little bit. And my, I guess over the last three years or the last two years, I've gotten really into meditation. And so w when you're talking about how we don't know anything about how the brain works and sleep works and all of these things, the body works, it, it makes me think about the fact that something I like about like meditating is that it's almost at times you, you're in that, and you're in that state where you're like halfway between being asleep and awake. And because, and I meditate with my eyes closed, but, and sometimes I'm sleepy, but sometimes I'm not, but it's that moment where you're like, you realize after 10, 15, maybe even, especially with 20 or 30 minute meditations that you're like, I was conscious the whole time and it felt almost like I was asleep, but I wasn't. And then you, when you wake up out of that, you're like, what other times do you spend awake except with your eyes closed? And what does that do to the way you see the world? Literally, like what your perspective is on the world when you like open your eyes and 
you purposely close them while awake, but not awake. And what does that do to your brain waves? Obviously, there are people that have researched this much more than I have because I haven't. But I just know, <laughs> I just know, like I respond to it really um, positively, like without, if, if you know what I mean. And so I don't always sleep well at night. But it's interesting that awakened sleep that sometimes happens, like in meditation, can really affect you, like. Um, amazingly, you know, because you kind of wait, you're like, I know I had my eyes closed. So why does this feel so different when I'm opening them after like just 10 minutes? Incredible. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I've Is been that- meditating for many years. My mom has, since I was a kid, was always told me if I was like distressed, she'd be like, go meditate. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Thanks, awesome. mom. Thanks, Thanks, mom. Thanks, <laughs> So I feel that I, for me, meditation came through travel. Like when you're on tour, when you're on the plane, when you're on the New York subway, I would always meditate on the New York subway. It, wow. e- even though it's crazy, I just, I love the din and I love the motion and the sounds and the people. And that always lets me go to a happy place for some reason. So I think that's really, that's amazing. And all the successful people that I've ever met in my entire life, they always talk about meditation. They always talk about sleep. So it's really interesting that this is how we started our conversation. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Is that a part of your routine? And I'm also curious what kind of triggered your recent interest over the past couple of years in meditation. Was there something you read or someone recommended it? When did that become a part of you? All of, yeah, all of the above. A couple of friends of mine were getting more into meditation just about a year, a couple of years ago, or maybe before. And I knew this friend of mine that I don't see that often, but you know, we talk about stuff and he's a musician and, and he was like, Hey man, yeah, I, I've been doing yoga and I've been really into meditation. I was like, Oh, that's cool. And then I heard from another friend who was like, yeah, man, I'm, I discovered this book, 10% happier by (laughs) Dan Harris. And this guy who was a ABC reporter and I was like, oh, interesting. He was like, yeah, just read the book because it's funny. You might relate to it. And I was, I read the book and I was like, this is interesting. This guy, a total skeptic and like his story journey to uh, meditation and, and got the app. I was like, oh, sure, let me do this. And then I just was hooked. I just, it felt like, it felt really great. Like I like to do things in my life that like everything comes back to music in a way. I've, I've spent my whole life and career trying to figure out just how to be better, feel better, be happier. I'm like, so not the person that is against self-help. Like I believe in self-help. I believe in going through life. Like you need to like, you know, I don't, I don't understand anything except for self-help, frankly, the whole concept that like, that yes, it helps to have other people to talk to and helps to go to resources and other people and family and friends and whoever you can to help you through. But also there's one person that also can make a difference and that's how you think and feel. So being aware of that is something I've been into. And yeah, that's how I got started with meditation in particular. And um, I've just kept going with it because it's like with anything, when you can see positive, when you can see yourself like having positive expressions of yourself or positive thoughts about what's going on or about the activity, I tend, you know, like most people, we tend to continue that activity (laughs) because it's like this is good for me i know it is because of certain things and it's been an interesting last just couple years because of that i think so yeah that's it that's the deal (laughs) with meditation can i just say one thing anthony can i call you anthony Mm -hmm. is that okay 
What? I'm being, I'm being awkward for no reason. <laughs> just because um, I'm like I'm twice your age or something, I don't feel like it. I don't, <laughs> you don't, I don't think I'm twice. Not, not twice. Yeah, man. <laughs> not twice. Nah, You're man. Young. I'm, I'm older alive. than I look. Trust me. Uh, <laughs> I, I know you get this a lot through research. A lot of people ask you what it's like to be the first African American principal player of the New York Phil. But like, I'm so happy that you exist, and I'm thankful for all the work that you do. Because I feel like being black and doing not only just music, but classical music at such a high level is difficult emotionally. It's difficult getting through a lot of those, just the everyday obstacles that you, that one has to go through. And I'm just wondering, like, how does it feel? Have you ever in your meditation gone back and talked to your 10 year old self and just been like, yo dude, this has been a crazy ride. And, and if you could, what would you say to 10 year old Anthony no, to get a, you to where you are right now? Yeah. It's a great question. And what's interesting about that is I, I do get asked that question a lot, but what I go back to, to answer it is literally what I would tell any other young black musician. Okay. Like in classical musician or maybe any other musician, period. I just this morning had a conversation with a young, talented black musician who I'd never met. Mm -hmm. I had a friend say, I would like you to talk to this person and they'd be happy to talk to you because they're super talented and they're just beginning their journey, having a little bit of doubt like we all had and we all have. Mm -hmm. And do you want to meet with them? And I said, sure. And we had a nice conversation. And basically, I told her a couple things. One is that when you have those moments where you aren't sure if you deserve something or if you belong or if you, like all of us, are not good enough, First and foremost, you have to you have to come back to the uh, place of self kindness and self love. So you have to tell you have to be in a way you have to be proud of yourself. Mm-hmm. And like I said earlier, if we wait till the world gives us validation or the world says that we're good enough or others around us congratulate us or respect us or even treat us kindly. We might be waiting a really long time. (laughs) (laughs) So like I said, once again, the only person that, that is really valuable that can, that one should train to encourage yourself is yourself. And that I think, especially with the added pressures and the added barriers that maybe exist being a black person is really necessary to have like extra self-love when you yourself might doubt what that is based on your skin color. And because that built-in doubt happens with humans in general, and then on top of that, you have this societal thing that that get kind of seeps into your head. We, tr- we can try to ignore it as much yeah, as we want. Yeah, but it's, it seeps in We can in try there. to ignore it yeah. as much as we want, mm-hmm. but it seeps in there like somebody's mm-hmm. telling you. You could be that statistic. You could yeah. be at every One in turn, 10, right? One right? in and 10. Even when, as Black people know, when you even when you walk into a store or you see a, a cop, you think, wait, what did I do wrong? You know? Like, you tell yourself wow. that. 
You tell yourself that and it's wait a second. Oh, no. You have to constantly say, I did nothing wrong. I play clarinet, bro. I, I, you have to, even, no, no one can look at you at all. And yet I find myself being aware of myself, of that thought that I'd somehow need to straighten up and be like, I didn't do anything wrong. Grasp yes, with yes. <laughs> and it's like, that doesn't come from like nature that comes from like this stuff out there. Mm-hmm. So having said that, what you have to do is just like, counteract that with a lot of self pride, self love, be prideful in a way that is humble and mm-hmm. full of love for yourself. And that's the, that's where it all starts. Also knowing that if you make the right decision, you do the right things and you do the work and you stay focused on that, that self love, that self inward thoughts about what my goals are, how I can look at the world and go forward and do the work that I'm passionate about and that I love, then everything will work out. Okay. It's when we let the other stuff from outside the external forces and sometimes internal forces self-sabotage and sabotage our journeys then that can get complicated. Mm. And it's unfortunate when that happens. And we know that happens a lot to a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. So we have to constantly, yeah, it's not fight, but we have to constantly counteract that force. Mm. And by with um, focus, I would call it, it's attention to what it is that are, is our gift. And that is very important. Or what are we here for? And if it happens to be music, if it happens to be art, if it happens to be whatever, if we center that in ourselves and every day we have to remind ourselves when we get down and those other voices come in, it can be, I think, really helpful. And Amazing. also knowing that other uh, there are lots of people that are rooting for you, too. I had an old teacher say, I, I always, I did the right thing for you because I believed in you. And mm. this is a teacher who was white. A lot of my mentors and friends and teachers and supporters over the years were, were white. I mean, it's not, that's not racial. What's, what's important is that you find those people that believe in you and listen to them. Listen to those people, not anybody else. Everyone wants to focus on all the negativity and the hate out there. And like, how did you get through? Well, you know what? Uh, those voices were coming from all kinds of different areas in my life. The negative ones. And so the people that uh, that I love and I appreciate are the ones that were the opposite of that. What fascinates me is under this clear umbrella of humbleness, and it's obvious what helps drive that now is this in, this journey inward. You've really been fully embracing self-love and your own inner journey. And so it's like answers that question of like, how do you keep going? How do you stay humble? Speaking of older teachers, I noticed in an interview with Forbes, uh, you had mentioned uh, a teacher kept you humble with the age old phrase, every day there is someone who is born better at the clarinet. One of those, they're born and they're better. And have you called this teacher to let them know that they were wrong? (laughs) That you are the best, that you are the best. And it it hasn't happened yet. Someone's got to be the best. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, yeah, that's so funny. No, we keep in regular contact. I've seen him a couple times recently on Zoom. We've had, we've 
exchanged master classes and stuff <laughs> recently. And we're buddies, we're friends, but he's definitely like a, a mentor. And you need people, as much as you need people to support you too, you need people to tell you the truth as well. So that's another thing. I was like, sometimes being humble and being like, whatever doesn't mean you don't need to like, and loving yourself doesn't mean that you need to love yourself so much that you think you are the best when you need to keep working. So like literally, I mean, I'm actually very well aware that I am not the best. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I'm not even joking. Like, it's just not I'm I am, but I am good at I'm good at me. Yes. Like, yes. I'm, I'm good at being me. I might be the best me. <laughs> I <laughs> like, love that. Seriously. I mean, there are other people that are so great at uh, doing things on the instrument that are like amazing. And like I could I just can't do as well as them. But I definitely can't be a be- I can be a better me, but I'm the best me that exists today because that's the only me. That's the only person I can work for. That's the only, <laughs> I, I can't. You can't really play like other people. You mm. can't really do things in their place. You can only try to do stuff that you can do well. I can't play the tempos other people can play. I can't play the, you know, I can't play. And sometimes I don't want to. It's like that whole concept of I don't need to run. And music is different than sport, for instance. I don't need to run a three minute mile to be really great at, at music. Like, I don't need to be the fat, you know, it's different. And I think sometimes we people like equate it with sport, which I love, which it has some similarities to, but a lot, some of it doesn't. Yeah. I I love what you said about best. And I've been thinking about this a lot. Honestly, probably my entire career. What does the best mean? Cuz there are an infinite number of parameters like that you can measure best under. Uh, are you the best kid who's 10 years old? Who's better than everybody who has a job? Are you the best uh person who was born in 1994? It's the, it, it doesn't really matter. I, I love how you like you you pigeonhole it back to the best me, and I think that the top performers always look at it like that. Tiger Woods was like, "I'm not competing with anybody except myself," and it's apparent. You know what I mean? And I think that's a really wonderful perspective and one that I personally will continue to take with me. Believe it or not, I actually met your brother. Before I met you, Demare, mm-hmm. when I was I was auditioning for Seattle Symphony, oh, yeah. and yeah, it was February 2020, and it was right before the whole pandemic went down, and it was rainy, it was cold, and it was the night before the audition, and we were at a bar with a bunch of symphony musicians. I was I was speaking with Demare, and he spoke so highly of you. Are you guys really close? Being the younger brother, like, what was that relationship like growing up? Yeah, I would say we're like really close as family members. Like we don't talk every day. Yeah. Sometimes we don't talk every week, except yeah. for when that soon after that pandemic, we actually soon after you were in Seattle, we went on a tour with our trio mm. and we got back. We went, we got back in like early March from that tour and we were, we started to talk every single day for a couple weeks. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, that, and, and he's so busy. Like he, I, what I love about my brother is that he's the one that inspired me to work so hard because he's like the hardest worker ever. 
So the only reason we're not closer is because probably is he's too busy and I'm too busy. But he's he started it. He started <laughs> it's it. It's his fault. It's his fault. No. <laughs> like we we will catch up. I saw literally I saw him on Clubhouse the other day. <laughs> we were like we were in the same room. I was like, hey, I guess we should call each other. But this is a nice way to meet anyway. But we have a very close knit family. Mm-hmm. So it, it it takes a lot. Nothing can get in between that ever. Yeah. <laughs> so it's good. It's good. We have a real strength there, I think. So, yeah, I mean, four years older. He was the older brother that I was lucky to have because mm-hmm. I saw all of his struggles. I saw all of his super successes growing up. And he was like, who was your role model? Well, well frankly, in music, it was my brother for so many of those early wow. years because he mm-hmm. was just like, Talk about being the best. <laughs> Talk about winning things. If you're talking about competitions and stuff. And like, he was like tearing up the scene in Chicago. And so he was like the, a trailblazer, I would call it. Like, so I saw that from the time we were kids. My brother was just like, if there was a more objectively, like in as far as accolades within the music competition industry like growing up my brother was like demonstrating what that was like okay incredible he 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 was demonstrating how to do that quite well and he was just so into music and just loved it and just so passionate and it was pretty pretty amazing i'm always fascinated whenever we see someone achieve success you know what do we do we look at their history like how did they become how did you become yourself and speaking of Tiger Woods or someone like Mozart, when we're thinking of that whole 10,000 hours initial study was for all of them, the environment they grew up, let alone all the work and the effort and the drive. But behind both Tiger Woods and Mozart was incredible parents who were also teachers. And I know your parents, Damari and Ira, were also just, they seem super fascinating back then. These real like bohemian renaissance families just i didn't grow up around sculptures or art or modern dance and so it's just (laughs) fascinating to to have heard your story and about growing up in an environment that really just fosters creativity and to have such a supportive brother really helping you both pulling each other along into heights what was it like growing up in that environment yeah for sure i mean this is interesting i mean my parents are like there, yeah, it's like the number one reason for me that I know I'm here. I mean, obviously. <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah. Besides the obvious fact. Number one obvious and number two. Fact, yeah. Number one and number two reason that I'm here. By wink, here, wink. I mean what I am, like playing music yes. and how I'm going through the world and all of the stuff that I think about the world is all from them. Because what was interesting about them is that they they like really talked about raising us. They discussed how they wanted to go about doing so. They were very intentional about about the process of raising us. And that is a very interesting thing, being a kind of new parent myself with a four-year-old. is mm. like there are so many times in, in your life as a parent where I think you can just like every day is just you go in with the flow, whatever happens with the flow, okay. But I think it is because of how they grew up and what they faced in the world that they knew that they wanted to be intentional about how to raise young black men, young black kids in America. 
because they knew that they had to be. They wanted to try to, how should I say, control the outcome as much as they could mm-hmm. by like having certain, they had certain f- philosophies and rules and like ways of encouraging us, but ways of trying to, trying to keep us safe too. Most parents on the South side of Chicago, if they didn't care and weren't intentional about what we were doing, I mean, they would have just been like, yeah, well, anything that happens is going to be fine. But like <laughs> for a lot of kids and you talk about environment for a lot of kids in a lot of environments, it's not all just going to be fine if somebody isn't there looking after things and and supporting things the right way. So music education that's to get back on track and arts was a part of it. They both were art teachers when they when they met. They were in college and mm-hmm. and then it went from there. But when they had my brother and I, the music thing developed. There was a flute in the closet. There's a long story about that. They would get together and they just enjoyed music and art. And it was just a part of who who they were. They this was in the in the sixties. They wanted to be and art and music and in the movement of the civil rights era and stuff was such a part of, of the black community and such a part of American life in those days that of course classical music being very a little bit different, but the whole concept of like their kids wanting to play music and them wanting us to play music. They wanted us to be exposed to everything. It's like we had a life that they our parents gave us the lifestyle that people from a certain uh, socioeconomic background just take for granted. Like we we had tennis lessons, karate lessons. Whoa! Like wow. I went to science camp. I went to interlock. You know, I did all those things. They didn't really have money to send us to those things. So maybe the tennis camp got sh- cut short, you know, <laughs> or, but they exposed us to all of that stuff. They were just very big into sacrificing them, themselves for us. So much so like my dad, I told you they still both started off as artists and they're still artists. But my dad, when the Chicago public schools went on strike, my dad was like, all right, I need a job. So the Chicago Fire Department was hiring. And that began his career in the fire department. Because he was like, all right, got to support my family. And so I'm mm. quitting teaching because they're not paying us, the teachers. We walked out, people, they're going on strike a lot. And yeah, he joined the fire department. And that was the start of his illustrious career in the Chicago Fire Department. He retired as deputy commissioner of the entire Chicago Fire Department. Wow like 30 years later and but is still a creator still has artwork i mean he's these really gifted artists my parents and then there's my mom as you mentioned who is the renaissance woman she knows dance classes choreographer theater and late in life she became an actress producing her one woman shows and like wow. getting spots on tv shows that you've heard of like chicago <laughs> fire like, like you what? can see my mom like chicago She's fire really? wow. she she was in like an episode of Chicago Fire with a speaking role and stuff. Wow. Well, she had an advantage. Been... She knows how the fire department works. That's true. <laughs> yeah, good point. Good point. The perspective was there. No, but and and she was in different theaters and productions in Chicago when they lived there recently. And she and she got her master's in dance movement therapy back those all those years ago. Working with people. I mean, and my dad's such a leader, and he's studying you know, on fire department. You can start off like just going into burning buildings and stuff, but then to go into the offices and stuff, you have to study like these manuals. He was in fire prevention too. So he had to know all of this stuff about so much detail. And I saw my parents studying a lot. I saw my parents Mm. and how they worked and how they went through the world and what they, what drove them 
And so they were very conscious and very aware of who they were in this, in the world. And that in order, because of who they were and because of the color of their skin and where they came from and how much money they came into the world with and their circumstances, they knew that they actually, they had to take an active role in their lives. They couldn't just let stuff just happen. They had to be the ones to attempt to make that happen. I love that extrinsic outlook on life and i find that it's not it's a little common in american culture but i found so many people that have situations that they're unhappy with if they don't have that extrinsic outlook on their life like whatever happens to me i can affect what happens to me if you can't think that way it really becomes a detriment Because if you think that everything happens to you and you only react to what happens to you, you have less of an opportunity to like really change your circumstances. And I love that you learned that from your parents. I want to meet them. I want to meet them. They sound so dope. (laughs) They are super dope. I mean, they're just like, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Because, um, like who well, who I go to, you know, like sometimes we go to, we can have friends, we can have mentors, we can have all these people, but it's nice to have, I, I know I'm lucky. I know I'm very lucky because my parents also, they worked in schools. They know all of the disadvantages. They saw all of them. They did, and in Chicago, they didn't work at the, like the best neighborhood schools. They worked in the schools where they had metal detectors in the nineties, in the eighties, they worked at these schools. They walked into them. They understood. They went to these schools in the city. And so they understand that the kid that comes in and whose mother hasn't been home or whose father's in jail, who hasn't been there, like they go to homes without food on the table and they come into art class and to school the next day. These are young kids to teenagers to, you know, seniors in, in, in high school. They understand what the social ills are in these communities. And so for them to come home and then to be able to, in a way, know, okay, this is important because we see what the effect of this is. Mm -hmm. To have them in those situations to understand perspective of what's happening in the world and then come home and try to teach us how to do good in in the world. And they knew what the alternative was in in these neighborhoods too. And the alternative is, you don't have any supervision and you're just out in the street hanging out with friends. And all of those things that are available to all those kids were also available to my brother and I at any moment, whether it was joining joining a gang or whatever, just making wrong decisions. I mean, this was all very front and center, like in, in our world at the time. So they knew how important it was to teach us about that. So we could make better decisions still. So yes, we did grow up being fearful of things because like (laughs) we knew how, what the, what the result would be if we weren't knowledgeable about certain things. There's some phrase, uh, I can't remember who specifically coined it, but it's mentioned Abraham Lincoln's an example, Alexander the Great, often it's associated with generals, but it's really stuck in my mind unlike the author of the phrase, but stay close to the suffering is a great driving force for leadership. And it goes across the board because no matter how high up you get, you need to find out who's at the the lowest end of the totem pole, so to speak. Alexander the Great, go sits by the troops. Abraham Lincoln, 
goes to the front lines, like witnesses what my decisions do, who is that actually affecting. And at a company, when you get too high up, you don't know. Jeff Bezos is like way up there. Uh. You don't know who's peeing in the bottle. And in the bag. At, at your workspace. And so it seems like a lot of these, like, like with your parents, at these like very well-educated, so dr- driven and smart. They're witnessing what's going on around them in the community. And they know, okay, what can we control? And part of that is just the path of their kids. I love hearing about that. My parents... They were a little older when they had me, so they're in their late 60s, early 70s, and I was right at the cutoff before the idea of parenting existed. <laughs> so, oh wait, we got to like read about this kid? And that kind of worked out to me because I just had this winding journey, but I see so many people who've gone on and had such success and are so well-read, I and mean, they had these parents that were, were artists or were teachers, and it's neat to see all these various paths there. Was it difficult for you growing up with such parents who you're interested in art, you're taking tennis lessons, you're staying busy, you're doing all this great stuff. I know, at least for me in rural North Carolina, it was a little weird. Wait, you're in musicals? <laughs> you're doing all these weird artsy <laughs> stuff? Like it's frowned upon. I'm not sitting on a tractor or like <laughs> driving cars really fast on the highway for fun. <laughs> like, did you have a other community of other like kids your age that were also interested in all these arts? Or what was that balance like growing up? Yeah, I had a lot of different worlds. Had a lot of different friend group or acquaintance groups, you could call them, that I was interacting with at a lot of different moments in my life growing up. Just to backtrack on what you said about staying close to the suffering, one of the things that we used to do when, as a family when we would visit a new city is that we would drive through the worst neighborhoods. We would try to find the worst neighborhoods in the city. And I thought it was, and when I look back on it, it was very interesting because. It gave us, like, if we wanted to, if you wanted to see a real city, if you wanted to get a sense of the actual city, you would need to go into the worst part of that city to have a a real view of what existed in that place. And I thought that was Mm. very, very interesting. I'm just talking about it now with you. And it's true because you can get so out of touch. What did that do for you? as a person, like, getting out of touch. It gave me a, a sense or a perspective of what was real versus what wasn't and what it gave me a sense of not just like my place in the world and what I would like my place in the world to be because, and to consider that real people live in the neighborhood that I grew up in the South side. Right. So my street was like, my street was like fairly nice on the South side, but we knew all of the other neighborhoods that weren't too, but everyone from the other areas of the city that didn't really understand, they saw on the news, you see on the news what these areas are like. And so you assume that real people don't live there. Yeah. That people, that, that good people mm-hmm. don't live there. Like mm-hmm. people like trying to work, working class people, like, there's even like a black kid that's playing classical music in those areas, you know, it's like people's perspective of the world gets very twisted based on what they see right next door to them and who they interact with. And so it gives you like the sense of, oh, yeah, wait, don't that they're all everybody's we're all, you know, people and we're basically all the same. Some of us have more money than others. Some of us look a little bit different, but that doesn't make certain places better or worse. So the whole concept of better or worse is like a perspective that you get used to accustomed to, I think, when you have like lots of privilege. Oh, I even I don't want to live there, but like real people live there because mm-hmm. they have to. That's like the majority of the world. 
we live where we live because we have to, not necessarily because we want to. So mm. yes, if you want something different, you can. You might have to make certain decisions to try to get something different. Talking about growing up, the different friend circles and the、mm-hmm. different people. So that's interesting because. On on the one hand, like when I would go to when I would go to school, like I remember in third, fourth grade, I started playing clarinet in fourth grade, and at the time there was this part of my life where I was like wanted to be a track star and wanted to fit in, but I was also like nerdy, so I was getting good grades, but I was also hanging out with one of my best friends at the time and throughout my life who. Passed away a few years ago. Julius was like my cool friend, and I was like this nerdy little kid. And he took me into the cool crowd of kids at the school I was at. And we even, you know, took the bus together and did all these things together. And he was also a rapper. He was like a successful nine-year-old rapper. Wow! <laughs> in, in, in Chicago, and and Julius used to do. He used to dance like Michael Jackson, which helped.、Wow. And he used to perform at the Regal Theater, a famous、um, theater on the, block, on the south side of Chicago, and performed to big crowds and、wow. stuff. And this was my buddy. This was my best friend, and, and I was his nerdy <laughs> friend. Every rapper and, needs a nerdy sidekick. Like, <laughs> yeah, gotta- yeah. And, and and so I had that group of friends at, at school. And then I had some friends that like a, a lot of like like people who weren't my friends making fun of me because I was I was I've always been sh- I've always been short I've always been the short I've never been the tallest person in my class. People are like I used to be the <laughs> tallest person in my class. I was like no, no that never、know. that was never me. <laughs> that was never me. And I I was not the lightest complexion person in my class because that was the thing in in our community. So get made fun of for being too dark for、mm-hmm. talking too white for.、Mm-hmm. Playing classic music, not joining, and so I was on the track team, and I was cool, so I was fitted. I fit in that way. But as I got older, in like seventh, eighth, you know, ninth grade, I I did not. My parents did not want me to, and I don't know if I did either. But they did not want me joining the. And I was on the basketball team briefly too in those years. <laughs> but there was a lot in Chicago. Sport was like the thing, like in a lot of neighborhoods, a lot of our society in America, of course. And I didn't want to join the football team, and I remember being totally like bullied and made fun of because of that at a certain point in seventh, eighth, ninth grade. And so there were all these kind of things, right? So I found my people and I stuck with them, my friends. But I also couldn't like hang out after school very much, like just randomly. And my parents didn't just say, "Be like, all right, bye, see you later." <laughs> they, they were like, "They're like, where are you gonna be, and with who, and who? Where are their parents? And let's talk to them." So we know where you are. Oh, we—they're not going to be there. You're not. You're going to be hanging. Then you need to come right home. There was no like this. Just let's just like chill after school or something because they knew what where they—they <laughs> they were like, look, we gotta. The the parents that I knew of that part of that circle, they were all the same because、mm-hmm. they knew what the alternative was. Because like you you have all freedom in our neighborhoods. And the people that are the kids that are in the gangs, the gang leaders are just recruiting、mm-hmm. kids like us, and so that's the whole point to keep us away from that scene. And so you had that kind of that part 
Then you had, for the music acceptance, I had this community of musicians. It was a group called Chicago Teen Ensemble. I talk about it almost in every single interview. And my brother was a member of it and other kids and all Black musicians, young musicians. And we would play arrangements and we'd play original pieces by different composers that Barry Elmore, who was our um, band teacher at this one school I went to, where my brother graduated from sixth grade at, called Poe Classical, where we were getting Spanish, public school, but they got Spanish, music, choir, you name it. And a lot of kids came from that school, Edgar Allan Poe Classical. And with that community, that was interesting because that was like, I was the nerdy little kid trying to be cool like my brother and his classical music playing Black musician friends. Wow. And mm. so that's what like I saw as being like, oh, these they're cool. They're going to the, the best high schools in Chicago. They're from the same neighborhood. And there's, a, 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 by the way, there's also a community of super successful and there always has been in Chicago. People talk about the South Side as being something that it's not. It's like Chicago has like the mo- the most black millionaires in this nation or something really? like that. Some like wow. statistic like that. So yes, we have gang violence, but we also have a lot of people who figure out the right path and do amazing things all over the world. And so it's like the, those neighborhoods aren't what you think they are. Like to go back to what we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. And that's what people tend to forget. And so going downtown to like Chicago Youth Symphony and to that world of seeing what a lot of my friends and colleagues in that world were from the north suburbs, the north side Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of Chicago, which is predominantly white. And within those great, those better zip codes, let's just say. And so I see that very clearly now as an adult. As a kid, you don't really understand it so much or what that means. But I made such great friendships playing music with people. Like, that's what was interesting, is that most people didn't have a problem with it. I, occasionally I would hear, oh, you're from the South Side. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And maybe that's what everyone was thinking. Yeah, yeah. But I had so many friends and supporters and people that that made those years really great, too. You know, so. And when you're young, you're a little oblivious to all kinds of stuff, too. But yeah, they were diff- different worlds, different worlds for sure. And I don't know if I was able to process that or I just was just happy doing stuff I liked to do, which was music. It's incredible. I know we've even mentioned on before. So like whenever Chicago or Baltimore pops up in the news, it's often just like this code switching, a code name. They can't say black. So they're just like, oh, scary Chicago. But then, yeah. you know, they show the numbers of New York, LA and Chicago and, and gun violence. But it's like you're... For those who out there who don't know, you are way more likely to get shot in any rural place in this country <laughs> than any city, just mm-hmm. like by a per capita basis. And you mentioned perspective. It makes a lot more sense when, again, you visit any place that's been like scary in the news. Oh, you're going to go to this country. You're going to get robbed. You're, there's It's war torn. It's all these horrible things. And then you go there. You realize it's it's none of that. That was just the news. It's, there are people there. They're worrying about what am I eating for dinner? How are my kids? How am I going to pay rent? Is my mom okay? All the kitchen table issues. And then another perspective is just, well, watch their news of what they're saying about here. Like all these Americans, like they're killing each other. They're like, yeah. <laughs> right. they're don't go You're going to get yeah. shot. Right. Like, don't, every, don't every, go here. Yeah. Like, it's, you know, what's, what's crazy about this whole thing is that you mentioned gun violence. Everybody's like, but look at Chicago. Look. Yeah. And it's, wait a second. If you actually lived in these neighborhoods, you would realize that everyone in those neighborhoods does not want guns in their neighborhoods. 
because the only people that are getting killed in those neighborhoods are black people killing black people. We don't want that. Nobody in those neighborhoods wants that. So yes, please get rid of all the guns. Those na- <laughs> people take people in people in those neighborhoods won't be upset. They mm-hmm. won't be upset. And that's like the whole when you think of like certain communities as a monolith of criminals instead of actually people 99% of whom are good and trying to raise their kids the right way and send them to the right schools without fear of them getting shot by by gangsters or whoever then you realize that the the bias is not and the pro- trouble is not with the people in those neighborhoods the people the trouble is with the perspective and the lack of connection with the reality on the ground in those neighborhoods which is that people are trying to to live <laughs> we're all worrying about the same thing yeah <laughs> survival my family what i'm mm-hmm. going to eat <laughs> i know you've had a particular focus recently in this kind of like activism be, being an artist citizen and bringing that into your sphere like i know recently there was the take two knees initiative mm-hmm. which kind of like spread around and like me personally a big part of my artistic output as a composer has been focusing in on gun violence and the victims and the families and mourning that i also just a few weeks back was not far away enough from the king super shooting in boulder colorado and it's just something that's it's just a uniquely american experience but there's that quote that keeps coming up anytime in our music sphere something terrible happens and what do we hear leonard bernstein this will be our reply to violence to make music more intensely more beautifully more devotedly than ever before and i'm sick of the quote just because it's like it's always appearing but to some degree we can keep making music art is the pulse of history it's the response to history and how do we accept it but then again Maybe there's more to it than just the music, speaking out about it, talking about it, raising money, doing initiatives, doing something beyond just our art to contribute to change. What does it mean to you to start these initiatives, to directly speak about it, to to yourself play these kind of vigils and memorial services? I think so much of what we try to do in our lives is like, is and I talked about focus, right? Yes. Spend your whole life trying to focus on what we do. Like, I think it's maybe it's like an American thing. We focus on our jobs. We focus on our success, our financial success by whatever we're good at. That's what we need to do. Right. But, at, you know, at some point in at some point throughout your life or in your life, or as you go through experiences, in your life, you realize that you actually you sometimes you feel like almost like you can't make a difference. Right. So in certain ways. And mm-hmm. yet. I think, especially within the last few years, I think maybe because of the nature of social media and connection with the greater society, or maybe it's that you get a, a, a couple that with certain circumstances in my own career that have been successful and given me like an outlet with people asking me what I think about stuff more publicly and more and just more, many more times, you know? <laughs> like, people think you become an activist. It's like, no, when I was 20 and I joined the Cincinnati Symphony, I had one interview. Maybe I had an interview five, 10 years later. Maybe I had, a, that's when it used <laughs> to be. The print, print media was when people heard your opinions about stuff. And when you're younger, sometimes you're fearful, like in, in our generations before you guys. I think a lot of generations, 
most of the people were more, a lot of generations are more fearful of what it means to, to do something or say something or what have you. And when you have, when you're empowered and you feel like people actually do want to hear what I have to say about these things. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. by saying something about them, I might help other people. So I've never tried to shy away from that, but I think this has been the last few years as, as I, for some reason, of course, as I joined the New York Philharmonic and that became like a, a, a platform where people are like, oh, he's the first black principal clarinetist of the New York Philharmonic. Mm-hmm. And then people asking you what that means more than ever before. And people are taking notice. Then you realize, like I've always known, which is that the power of what you say the power of what you communicate online is something that can affect others. It can help people. And the whole point of me becoming a musician, a lot of artists understand this and, and musicians is that we're trying to, we're trying to express something through music that can just help the world. Does it, we don't want to hurt, no. you know, like most musicians and artists aren't trying to make their art to hurt. And if you can meld those things, like your ideas about the way the world could be and how beautiful people are and how beautiful you want the world to be with those ideals, an idealistic view of what the world could be, with your voice and your power as a musician to, to spread that same, that beauty in a different way, I think maybe that's what Bernstein was trying to do. I'll be honest. I think some people think the quote was because it's taken as its at its own, right? But I think probably I'm not going to speak for him because I don't know. But probably compared to a lot of artists at his time, in his time, he that was probably going out on a limb <laughs> for him to say something like that publicly. And a lot of, so I don't know, I don't want to speak for anyone else's activism or lack thereof. I don't like believe in doing that, but I just know for a lot of people today, it is much more of something that is important for people to think about. In music school, for instance, when I was in school, no one was talking about activism. Like no <laughs> one, you, people were talking about classical music. And I think it's the world today is much more broad as far as what it means to be a successful person in the world. Broad as in, it does matter what you think about stuff. People don't want to support even athletes. People are like, oh yeah, you just, just, shut up and just dribble. yeah, just shut up and dribble, this kind of thing. And they're like, no, wait a second. We have power. We have power to say stuff. You compare in the athletic world, there are only a handful of people that felt like they had the power to be able to speak up for others. And that's the state of a world where you're told just to do that because you'll get in trouble. And back in the day, back in the day, you spoke up about stuff and we all know what happened, Mm -hmm. you know, like in our parents, my parents' generation and before when people spoke up, when black people specifically spoke up about stuff. It was dangerous. Very dangerous. It's life-threatening. Like it was if, life-threatening. In The Last Dance, did you ever see that? Yeah. Like how Michael Jordan specifically said, I don't talk about politics. Right. And he had the biggest platform. Right. The biggest platform. Right. So, I mean, that danger is something that is very real for people mm-hmm. from hundreds of years of this kind of terrorism, if you will. Yes. And so, you know, what's interesting about the world today is that there is much more of a realization that 
from everyone in lots of different spheres that we not only is it okay to do so, but we expect you to have an opinion about this mm-hmm. in order to help others. Because we've seen for so many years that when people that have positions of power, frankly, and when it comes to success in the world, people have positions of power that you should take responsibility to be able to like help by saying something, to make it a thing that exists because people want to pretend like certain things don't exist. And that's not, that's really not helpful for anybody because we can all feel bad and stay silent, but feeling bad isn't, isn't really helpful enough. No. And I'm not doing enough because there are the people that are really doing the work are actual activists. Yes. <laughs> They're like, act- that's their job yeah. is to affect the law is to get people off of death row, is to change the law, is to get people voting, is to is to be Brian Stevenson or Stacey Abrams or like yes. any Shout of out. these Stacey people. Is to, Shout out. is to be these people. That's their job. So I also am respectful enough and not unaware that my job is playing the clarinet. Yes. That's like literally what my job is. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to come up here and say, I am this, doing this work. No, but I'm doing it because I'm using my platform. I'm mm-hmm. trying to do the the tiniest little bit to be able to help. But that's what, you know? that's what change happens, right? It's like an avalanche of a lot of people doing a little bit spearheaded right. by the activists. Right. And I was speaking with Berkeley yesterday and I was asked the same question about, do you feel like it's your responsibility as an artist to speak to issues and be an activist. And it's crazy like what you said about the danger of speaking out. My grandfather was a civil rights leader in Atlanta. He had an FBI case open on him and my mom, who was like six. (laughs) You were a terrorist if you were a leader in the civil rights era to the eyes of the U.S. government. So I think that stigma and that radioactivity still exists, but I think that you're right and astute in saying that this is a different time. And I often grapple with, man, as a kid, when you're growing up and you have all these ideas of how the world should be, you're told by adults, that stupid kid, you shouldn't really talk about that. You shouldn't really say anything about it. And so for me personally, I'm like, am I still a kid? Do I have a say? Should I have an opinion on this? Should I have, is my opinion valid? Do I know enough? And so I think it's really interesting that what you said planted a seed in my brain of maybe we don't have all the answers. Maybe we are musicians. Maybe we are artists, but maybe our job is to start the conversation. Yeah, I mean, right there, right there with you, like exactly. I was talking to a, a, a man recently who's a presenter. He, he's a businessman, but he supports an organization that I'm going to be doing some work with. And he was talking about that. He was like, "I'm here to, I'm here to, uh, to, to listen and to learn and all this stuff." And I was like, "Look, what's funny is that we're all here to listen and to learn." I, I appreciate people talking about. I need to take a step back. But I was like, no, the fact that you are aware of that means that you can affect change too. Everyone's reading books and like listening and learning to be aware. But you know what? If it's not for people like you trying to make a difference, even if without all the knowledge or the experience that I may have, 
all of us with different experiences, taking all the knowledge that we have, which may be little, maybe a lot, and not being afraid to make some mistakes on behalf of others. Mm-hmm. Then I, I think that's really important that we're not afraid to do it because I feel like some of us get people get afraid to do it. We all get afraid to do it. We're afraid that someone's going to call us out and say, we don't know enough about this issue all the time. Right. But I still think, is it still okay to like go on a limb and say something and, and maybe make that mistake to try to help others? Yeah. Because you'll get better at it. We'll all get better at it and it'll help people. Hopefully. That's incredible. Speaking of hope and change and activism, normally we always, we start off with the history of who you are and then we go through the journey and then we wind up here uh, and we talk about the future, but we've been focusing so much in on the future and what you've been doing now. I just want to dive a little bit in the past before we're out of time. So hope, change, and activism. Let me set the scene for our, our listeners of a very special concert. It's January 20th, 2009. We're at the U.S. Capitol, Washington, D.C. The program, John Williams. It's yourself, Yo-Yo Ma, Isaac Perlman, Gabriela Montero performing. How offended were you when a certain Barack Obama upstaged your show with the presidential inauguration. <laughs> yeah, I've never had someone finish out my concert by you becoming president of the United States. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a nice wrap-up speech for that crazy moment. It's amazing to think about, and I, this is something that is to share, is that uh, people don't know this, but I only last year, right before the pandemic, got to meet him. Like mm. after all these years later, yeah, he and Michelle. That was, that oh. was the first the first time we were doing a recording session here in New York, and they were there at the recording session. And so I finally got to meet him. And yeah, she was, she was so they were cool. They were like super cool. They're they're cool. They're oh, like yeah. very cool. Yeah, they're like yeah. It's like weirdly cool. I was like, <laughs> I was like, you guys are like totally. Like they like they seem, but yeah, it's just I mean, also they had a hundred people trying to talk to them at the time, so Factual. I mean, they were they're probably like, "What's going on here?" Chicago but, um, connection, though. Did you guys like? Well, get no. To- you know what's interesting about that is that there is a Chicago connection, but it's not that we knew each other. But my dad and my parents have a program from this award ceremony on the South Side. It was like a community award ceremony somewhere in some hotel ballroom, probably, where my brother, I believe, was being honored with a youth thing. And this community organizer got an award, too, in this same event. And it was Barack. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, like, 30... Talk about weirdly, like worlds colliding at the same time but yeah barack was in he was there when we were growing up so yeah same circles i I can't remember which church he went to but i'm sure i've been to that church i forget which one but yeah i've been in there i think i might have even played music there like at a concert and 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 so like we were yes it's the south side is a small community in a way it's a large but but small community so yeah, we probably we crossed paths back Couple in those times, days when, you know? when I was like six, <laughs> probably when I was like five or something. I don't wow. know. 
Yeah. And then you played <laughs> at his and Michelle, Michelle went to the high school I went to before Interlochen. Oh. She went to Whitney Young. Yeah, I went to Whitney Young too for seventh, eighth, and ninth grades. That's my connection to them, Chicago style. That's yeah. incredible. <laughs> just to to bring this conversation to a, a close, because it's just been incredible hearing about your journey and to bring it back towards this inward focus with this hope and this change. And like, as you're going through your journey, you've accomplished so much already, but you're still really young. And now you're journeying through fatherhood. What's next? What brings you hope? What change do you see coming for it? I'm going to get deep here, but I am just happy. I'm happy to be breathing right now. I'm happy to be here with you guys. And we need to figure out more of kind of the stuff. We need to keep thinking about like, all of that stuff, like how lucky we are, all of us, not how lucky I am, but how lucky we are, how grateful we are. Like we're only here for a very short period of time on yes. this earth. So what's next for me is like trying to live in the way that I would like to live, to help others work with our students at MAP, Music Advancement Program through Juilliard, like where we're doing amazing stuff to, to help the next generation do what they want to do to live great, beautiful successful lives, not just in music, but outside of music and help people live healthy lives and be able to continue that message of unity, mm -hmm. of support for people. And I know this sounds like very much non-musical, but I think it's musical too, because I think that's what we're all trying to do in a way is unite people so we can, they can all live beautiful lives together. And I think that's what the beauty of life really is, though, right? To be able to try to, like, look around and not just look inward for some sort of successful part of one's career, but look around and say, what can I do? What am I doing to help others? And that's something that I can just say is like a goal that I want to do more of. I think we should let's let it roll and we'll yeah, just have I'm, a little I'm outro. We'll have a little outro. So if you've made it this far, folks, you've just experienced the gem, the majesty that is Anthony McGill. Uh, we had so many, we have a huge list of questions, huge list of research, and we kind of threw it all out the window because he's such <laughs> an interesting person. And as you can see, how we opened up, we spent very little on the biography. Because yeah. he really is focusing inward. Mm -hmm. He's going on to the next thing. He's got the perspective of the past, but he's still growing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like the, it's the David Goggins cookie jar. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? It's every accomplishment that you achieve in your life is fuel for you to get to that next one. For, for you to understand that you are capable to have an extrinsic outlook on life, understanding that you have control over what happens in your life. Whether you believe that fully or not, just understanding that like the consistency, the mindset, and the focus really lead to outcomes that, bring, that improve your life. And I'm so happy to hear a lot of those things, a lot of things that our previous guests have spoken about who maybe not 
haven't had the level of success as Anthony McGill, but it's great to hear those sentiments echoed. On this journey of self-discovery, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. I was always curious, like, how do you become who you are? And a lot of the biography says it's there. Amazing parents who are artists, who are creative, who had a plan for him and his brother, both becoming successful. But to really embrace that inner journey, mm-hmm. I mean, that's what it takes. We mentioned Tiger Woods in this mm-hmm. uh, instance, or we didn't get to talk about him. I want to talk about him. Like LeBron James and, oh, yeah. and affecting power. Mm-hmm. LeBron is the king. He's literally the king. Uh, LeBron, for those who don't know, he's of a, he's an actor. He's on a Space Jam too, <laughs> um, who has a side career as a basketball player. But he's powerful and he's the king because the NBA listens to what he has to say. And I think that's the shift from Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan's the star, brings in the dollars. He punched through the eyes. There's a couple before him, Magic. Yeah, go mm-hmm. back in history. But, the, Jabbar. Yeah. but the, the difference being LeBron is part of it's the time and the circumstances, but it's that shift in power. The NBA bends to LeBron's will. LeBron changed the landscape. When he wanted to start hopping teams, suddenly everyone's hopping teams. When LeBron has a stance, suddenly the NBA has to go in behind them. They're watching him. He calls the shots. If he wants to make a change, it's all within his power to go out and enact that. I wanted to get some more. He talks so much about his parents, which was so illuminating for me and I think very instructive. And I, I was curious. I wanted to hear more about like how his parents continue to study in their life, balancing mm-hmm. being parents their jobs, trying to get through the everyday struggles of living in a neighborhood where it's probably not very safe for your kids and that worry. And as I am an adult now, I'm not transitioning anymore. It's like, how do you find the energy? How do you find the motivation? How do you find the patience to continue to learn something new? And I think he, with level of proficiency and the level of, let's not mince words, he is, he's probably one of the GOATs guys like he, he he's a goat he's very humble he has a level of pride he spoke about that having pride in oneself in order to keep pushing forward but i mean he's played with perlman he's played with yo-yo ma he was at obama's inauguration he's played with pacifica quartet he just worked with catalyst quartet there's so many incredible luminary groups that vie for his sound and that doesn't happen by accident that doesn't happen without hard work and dedication. And I'm so happy he spent the time to come through with us. Lost my, my train of thought on the LeBron Tiger Woods comparison, because another reason why I wanted to bring them up is like both of them, not just with the parents, the environment or their kind of political power, but with athletes, one comparison that's similar to musicians is that no matter how much achievement you get and how high up in the ranks you get, you still have to deliver. You have to show up and play the game at a high level. And so I was very curious how he balances all of that. Because for instance, if you become successful in the business world, you're Bill Gates. You're climbing the ladder. At some point, you stop doing computer programming and you start making business decisions. And at some point after that, you go and run charities. You do all these other sorts of things. But for athletes at the top of their game, for musicians at the top of the game, you still have to show up. <laughs> You have to practice, you mm-hmm. have to practice. And yet he's doing all these things, overseeing map, doing all sorts of, of activism, recording sessions, doing everything else, but yet still has to practice, still has to show up to the orchestra mm-hmm. uh, and do the same thing he, he did 
from the first moment he started up there. It's kind of incredible. And I really, maybe next time uh, we'll be able to talk more about how he fits in meditation and raising the kid and giving them the life they want. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to say thank you for for joining us for this episode today, y'all. This was very special for me. I don't know if it was special for you, Trevor, but by the way Mm. that you, the questions you asked the insight that you really showed towards him, it was, it's really inspiring. I, I really enjoyed this episode, man. It's a great one. And we, it's so nice to have even someone, they're at this high level, not, he's not focusing in on the biography. He's still growing. He's still changing. He's still thinking like, where is my place and what can I do? And I think that's the takeaway as we keep having such high level guests and people from across all the spectrums of of industries and career levels and whatever they've achieved before, whatever they're going to achieve to still be focused on how can I make the world a better place? What can I do to make myself better? Um, So thanks again for listening, everybody. And if you want to support us, here's plug time. We got a Patreon now. Become a subscriber, become an official financial partner of the Faking Fam. And we'll be able to have more. Join our Discord. We've been talking behind the scenes about creating a town hall for all of us to, for the faking fam to commune, to collaborate. Twitter isn't good enough. There's a lot of hate on Twitter. So (laughs) we thought about building a a Discord and we actually have the channel, but we want you to join. So if you're interested in becoming part of the community and you want to support us to help us grow, help us keep adding to this podcast. Yeah. Join our Patreon and join the Discord. Looking forward to seeing you guys there. Thanks again. We'll see you next episode.